Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Pietism has a long history in the Christian church. For, for most of the Christian history, that's really been confined to monks and abbeys, nuns, those types of things. But more recently, it seems to have spread throughout Christendom in a lot of ways, and particularly in the evangelical church. What I mean by that is that many leaders and even members in the church today have failed to really apply God's commands and statutes to the, to the problems of the world around us, whether it's public policy issues, how to deal with government, uh, what to do with the culture, those kind of things. Too often we see the applying of um, God's word to ourselves in a spiritual nature, but not to these cultural problems. Well, I think as we can see the results of that when we look in the world around us, we see godless public schools, we see the transgender craze that's going on around us, and and, and we see this cancel culture that's that's really attempting to shut down any hint of God in our culture. Well, we're going to discuss all these issues today and what we can do about them with our, our special guest, E. Calvin Beisner, on this week's episode of the Liberty Cafe. Thank you all for joining uh, us today on the Liberty Cafe. It's always a blessing to have you here with us, and it's also always a blessing to acknowledge that we're sponsored at the Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. It's a great group of men and women out there who are fighting to bring um, truth about what's going on in our culture and underlying that with God's truth. And so it's a great organization. I encourage you all to go over to texasscorecard.com and find out more about what's going on there. Well, our, like I mentioned, our special guest today is E. Calvin Beisner. He is the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that in just a minute. Uh, in the past, he's, he's been an associate professor. He used to be in, academic, in academia, fortunately got out of that and uh, moved into some real world applications. But tell us maybe a little bit about that and why he did that. He's also been an elder in the, in the PCA and the OPC. That's the Presbyterian Church of America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he and his wife, uh, Debbie, have, who's, by the way, an accomplished portrait painter, have seven children and 12 grandchildren. So, uh, Cal, please, I'm glad to have you here on this week's uh, episode of the Liberty Cafe. Thanks much, Bill. It's great to be with you. And one quick update. We're now up to uh, 14 grandchildren and another due in a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonderful. We're, uh, we've been trying to do our best to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, <laughs> as God instructs all mankind to do in Genesis 1, 28. Well, I was just going to say, I understand that uh, in addition to congratulations on your uh, your grandchildren and grandchild coming, we can also wish you a happy birthday today. Yeah. Or pretty not, soon this month anyway, right? Right. Not for me personally, but for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Yeah, we uh, pretty much got our start uh, before we even got our name back in August of uh, 2005. So this is our 17th anniversary or birthday. And uh, uh, we're, we're trying to celebrate it in a fun way. Pretty neat thing is that a number of different donors have uh, teamed together and 
pledged to match any donations that come this month up to uh, $50,000, uh, which would be a tremendous help to us. We're expanding our staff, adding Dr. David Legates, who is a veteran climate scientist, climatologist from the University of Delaware, as our new director of research and education. And he will bring uh, everything that we do uh, to a higher standard of, of scientific uh, quality and uh, detail. Wonderful, wonderful fellow, uh, good brother in Christ as well. Uh, so you asked for me to just tell a little bit about Cornwall Alliance. Uh, one way of putting things is that we're trying to help, uh, trying to save the planet from the people who are trying to save the planet. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> a, a great deal of the environmental movement works from a, uh, an anti-biblical, anti-Christian worldview and uh, uses pretty poor science and economics. And so the kinds of policies that it promotes tend to be, uh, in many instances, very harmful to humanity, especially to the poor around the world, trapping them in longer-term poverty, uh, but also don't really do much to protect the natural environment. And so we want to bring a, a firm biblical worldview, to, coupled with excellent science and economics, to uh, trying to trying to define paths of policy that will lead to enhancing the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth uh, to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors so that we're really addressing the two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor. Uh, I first got into this sort of thing in the early 1980s as I uh, uh, read extensively on economics and on demography, population issues and, and environmental issues. Uh, in preparation for my master's degree in economic ethics, and then uh, uh, cooperated with an organization called the Coalition on Revival in putting together a variety of uh, documents on the application of biblical worldview to the various aspects of life. And uh, I was made the chairman of the Committee on Economics for that. Out of that came an invitation to write a book on uh, general introduction to economics from a biblical worldview perspective for Crossway Books uh, for their Turning Point Christian Worldview series. And one okay. chapter of that was supposed to address population resources and the environment. And as I worked on the, the study for that, I just told the, uh, the series editor, Dr. Marvin Alasky, with whom many people are probably familiar as the past uh, editor-in-chief of World Magazine, wonderful right. fellow. Uh, I said, Marvin, this can't be done in a chapter. And he said, well, all right, do another book just on that. <laughs> so <laughs> the result was my two books, Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity, which came out in 1988, and Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population Resources in the Future, which came out in 1990. Both of those are available from the website of the Cornwall Alliance, uh, cornwallalliance.org slash shop. Uh, or you can just go to cornwallalliance.org and click on the shop button. Uh, and also go those... there and click on the, the donate too, right? Uh, right. Yes, that would be wonderful. Uh, remembering that every uh, every donation this month will get doubled up to a total of $50,000 uh, matched. So combined, that would be 100000 Tremendous help to us. This has been a tough year for us as for almost all nonprofits with uh, the declining economy and heavy inflation. Uh, donations have gone down for 
pretty much all of us in this in this world. Uh, yeah. But those two books uh, led to my being uh, sort of looked to as uh, a go-to guy for uh, understanding of environmental stewardship and how it relates to uh, economic development for the very poor. And uh, eventually, <laughs> it led to the founding of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation back in in 2005, giving it its name in 2007, and uh, uh, actually becoming a, a nonprofit at that point. So it's been a, an, an exciting 17 years now of doing this. After eight years teaching uh, at Covenant College uh, in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and then eight years teaching at Knox Theological Seminary in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay, well, that's great. Uh, well. Of course, you and I have uh, run across each other. Uh, I, I ran across you before you ran across me. I think it was back in, well, I'd like to say the 90s. I can't remember when when it was exactly, but you wrote a book, Psalms of Promise. I assume that yeah, was out in the yeah. 90s sometime? Well, that Sorry. actually first came out in 1988, okay. I think it was. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so I, I definitely ran across it in the 90s and have used that to teach a Bible study here and, and just yeah. really enjoyed it. But then uh, more recently, we've, we've run across each other as I've written a chapter for a book that you're editing. That's right. On the, same, the same topic we're talking about. And, yeah. and so as, as I was perusing your uh, website uh, recently, like as I often do, I ran across an article that you'd written apparently over a decade ago, I think, for the, um, the Acton Institute that you republished on yes. your website. And it's called Recovering the Moral Foundations of Economics. And I, I thought it was a really good, well, really good summary and but also an introduction for folks who maybe don't know a lot about this concept of bringing you know biblical concepts into the study of economics and environmental uh, issues and dealing with poverty and those kind of things so I, what i'd like to do is just kind of walk through some of the themes that you had in this article and um, yeah, just have you explain this to some of our listeners today that's um, great i'd be glad to do that good so you write this article uh, in the beginning of this article. You talk about how you felt there was a need to to pro provide an alternative view to the, as you put it, the socialist and interventionist views that have dominated much Roman Catholic and evangelical writing on economics in the last 50 years or so. Can you just tell us first what is it that you were responding to that made you want to to write this article and well and just get into this business and, at all. Yeah, uh, because in some ways it was really quite surprising. Um, uh, I was converted to Christ actually in 1969 uh, as a seventh grader and uh, at a Billy Graham crusade, as a matter of fact. Hmm. And uh, as, uh, as a freshman in high school, I began to be discipled by some uh, staff members of Campus Crusade for Christ. And I came to just love telling people the gospel of Christ. I mean, just to, to be able to tell people how they could be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, who on the cross has paid the full penalty for our sins, for anyone who trusts in him. And, you know, that, that we can be assured of eternal uh, life in, in peace and joy with God. That's just an amazing thing, and I've always found it wonderful to get to be able to tell others about that. Uh, so all the way through high school and college and the first couple of years after that, uh, 
personal evangelism, one-on-one, telling people about Jesus and what he had done for us on the cross. And then apologetics, uh, defense of the faith, uh, to serve that personal evangelism. Those were the the real focus of my life and uh, just dominated everything that I did. Uh, But in 1981, uh, I was having breakfast once a week with a pastor friend and we would pray together. We read books together. We discussed the books. And one day he uh, came to the breakfast and he handed me a book and said, Cal, you've got to read this book. It will change your life. Now it was Ron Sider's book, Rich Christian, pardon me, Rich, (laughs) Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And it had to do with, you know, the church's responsibility toward the poor. Well, you know, amazingly, though I had been reading the Bible over and over again through the years, I had been largely blind to this aspect of its teaching. And I really had no interest in the subject, but he kept urging me to read it. And so finally I did. Now, I had done an undergraduate degree in religion and philosophy. I had taken a lot of logic. I had read many, many commentaries on various parts of the Bible and books on hermeneutics and the like. And so I knew logic and I knew biblical exegesis. And as I read Sider's book, I thought, wow, I don't think this is very logical and it surely is misusing a lot of pieces of the Bible. Uh, but I don't know anything about economics. Um, you know, how could I assess what he's saying about that? So, uh, I'm a, I'm a, a, a very dedicated reader. So I went to a store and I bought a whole pile of textbooks on economics and plowed through them all and, and got to understand some economics. And I wound up thinking, Hmm, he's botched his economics as much as he's botched his logic and his biblical exegesis. And if lots of evangelicals take his advice, we could do a lot of harm, even though our intentions are wonderful. And, and by the way, Ron Sider and I later became friends. Uh, and starting with about the third or fourth edition of his book, he really backed away from a lot of the uh, heavily socialist-leaning theory of the first edition. Um, so that's that's good. But I just decided, well, Somebody's got to be responding to this. So I, I, I went after a master's degree in economic ethics and then did this other work, and that led to my writing uh, Prosperity and Poverty. So it was kind of triggered by uh, Sider's book, but then, of course, uh, went in very different directions from where Sider did. Well, of course, even if Sider has sort of tempered his uh, attraction to uh, socialism, uh, many people haven't in this world today, including, unfortunately, a lot of um, folks in America and even in the evangelical church. And, and we, we see a lot of that uh, going on today. And um, so in your effort to, to bring a more biblical perspective to um, economics and public policy and the environment, those type of things. In this article, you kind of talk about three different sort of biblical and theological foundations. And the the first one you bring up is uh, economics and the image of God and man. Can you, can you explain explain why uh, that's a good starting point for us when we, when we're thinking about economics? Well, yeah, I think so. Um, 
you know, it's very typical for a lot of people to picture human beings as basically consumers and polluters. You know, uh, every every new child born into the world is looked at as basically uh, a mouth and an alimentary canal, and you know, then <laughs> the the uh, the methods of excretion, and and that's kind of the way, particularly the the population control movement, uh, the environmental movement looks at people. It's really interesting, for example, when, when a new calf is born, that calf is counted as wealth as a part of uh, gross domestic product. So for every new calf, you have an upward shift in GDP. But when a new child is born, that child is viewed basically as a consumer, and that child and every other child also born becomes something that reduces the apparent GDP per capita. It's so strange that we think of calves as more valuable in that respect than people. Uh, what, what people forget is that because God created us in his image and God is creative and productive, we should be and can be and indeed are very much like that. I mean, after all, think about uh, what we learn about God before we get to Genesis one twenty six, where he says, you know, let us make man in our image and uh, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and the cattle, and over all the earth and everything creeping <laughs> that creeps on the earth. Uh, uh, what do we know about God before that? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He started with nothing and he got everything. And then uh, he brought order out of chaos, light out of darkness. Uh, he made the, the land and the sea and divided them from each other and the sky. He made fish and plants and birds and beasts and creeping things. He brought life out of non-life and great variety of life. And he told each variety of life to be fruitful and multiply and fill its niche in the world. So we should be like that. Uh, what this means is that uh, intelligent, creative, productive work is an element of the image of God in man. And to the extent that we develop our intelligence, our creativity, and our productivity, and to the extent that we exert ourselves diligently in work, we're not merely doing but also being what we are meant to do and be. We're expressing the image of God and, and in so doing, we're growing in spiritual and personal maturity. Yeah, I think um, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, this is not new. Uh, you go back to Malthus and, and more recently, uh, was it Orlick and, and others who, who talk about yes. the population bomb, right? That, that mm -hmm. we, we have too many people coming. Everything's just going to blow up and we're going to go in this, this age of disaster. But you're, you're yeah. saying that not it's the more people we have isn't, just about consuming, it's even more so about producing. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, my, my mentor, Dr. Julian Simon, author of The Ultimate Resource and quite a few other books, uh, used to put it this way, you know, for every mouth born into the world, there are also two hands and most importantly, a mind that guides those hands. And so people on average produce more than they consume in their lifetimes. Back in the 1980s, when I was doing my research on this uh, for my book, 
uh, prospects for growth, a biblical view of population resources in the future. Uh, at that time, anyway, the average American male produced about 13 times as much as he consumed in a lifetime, and the average American female produced about six times as much as she produced in her lifetime. Uh, now that, you know, we men could could really boast and brag about that until we remember that the average American female produces the average American male, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, exactly. uh, but uh, you know, we are not the population bomb or the population bloom. We're not people pollution. We're the people solution, right? And, uh, and uh, the, the population control movement uh, wants to tell us that the world is getting overpopulated, but in fact, the very notion of, op- of overpopulation cannot be defined by any demographic data. You can't do it by uh, you know, the, the number of people per square mile. You can't do it by age distribution. You can't do it by the, the uh, rate of population growth. Because for every one of those things, you'll find some places, for instance, that have very dense populations that are very, very wealthy, and other places that have very, very dense populations that are very poor. And then you find places with very sparse populations that are very wealthy, and places with sparse populations that are poor, and and so on. So there are no actual demographic data by which you can define overpopulated versus (laughs) optimally populated versus underpopulated. What we do find in the history of the population control movement is that overpopulation has tended to be defined largely by color of the skin. So Paul Ehrlich, for instance, uh, famous for his book, The Population Bomb, that came out in 1968, Um, was much perturbed when he visited India. And he wrote of these masses of of dark-skinned people uh, reaching out and begging for handouts. And uh, this helped to promote his fear of overpopulation. Well, at the time, India's population density was around 300 people per square mile. At the same time, the Netherlands population density with white people, overwhelmingly, was about 1,300 people per square mile. And so obviously, (laughs) the Netherlands should have been called overpopulated if India was overpopulated. But all of this grew out of the the eugenics movement stemming from uh, Charles Darwin's uh, theories of human evolution that allowed people to think that some so-called races are less developed than other so-called races of human beings. Whereas the Bible tells us in Acts that it was all from one blood that God, uh, God brought about all the different nations and uh, assigned to them their places in the world. Uh, that's in Acts chapter 17. So it's really racism that drives population fears not good economics, not good demographics. Yeah, it, um, it certainly seems to have been the case when we get it, it just into America, right? And you've, you've, sort of, you've already mentioned this in, in our talk, and you also mentioned it in your article about uh, th- this isn't just about uh, 
us being productive. It's about us being who we want to be. And, and you took that in yes. your article and, and applied it to poverty relief programs, you know, welfare and you know, yes. food stamps and aid to families with the dependent children and those types of things. And, mm -hmm. and you critique those from this human image standpoint. Would you talk a little bit more about that here, please? Yeah. You know, those of us who have or have had pets, uh, you know, we put dog food and cat food down in their dishes for them, and we don't demand that they do certain work in response. We certainly don't put a, a, a bill <laughs> on the table and expect them to pay it. We treat them that way because they're dogs and cats, but we don't treat human beings that way. When they're little children, yes, we do, but as they grow to be adults, we expect them to begin to uh, provide for themselves and then to provide more than for themselves, to provide for others as well. Uh, but what most poverty relief programs do is that they, they create or perpetuate dependence. Uh, they treat people as if they were pets, not human beings. Uh, they reward sloth. Uh, and and they, they, uh, <laughs> they, they don't insist that people act out the image of God in them. The Bible teaches us instead uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for example, if someone will not work, it's not a question of whether he's able, it's a question of willing, will not work, don't even let him eat. Because, of course, if he will not work, then the food that he eats is not what he's produced, not what he's paid for, belongs to somebody else, and that means he gets it by theft, whether it's direct theft or indirect theft, with the government doing the, the actual taking of the wealth of some and then handing it over to him. Uh, these programs rob their so-called beneficiaries of their dignity as bearers of the Imago Dei. They, they thrust them down to the level of brute beasts rather than enabling recipients of so-called aid to exercise a godly dominion. They dominate the recipients with a form of oppression that is every bit as deadly to the soul as any political tyranny. Yeah. And, and I think we've certainly seen, uh, that in the United States, particularly over the last, now it's going on 60 years. And, you know, yes. Uh, you know, I've read a lot of, a lot of people, but Thomas Sowell is particularly really good on this, yes. how, how there was just this blooming and blossoming of black culture and black education and education levels and attainment, economic mm -hmm. attainment leading into the 1960s. And then it, it seems to have almost not not entirely, of course, but almost just come to a screeching halt when we started seeing uh, the passage of the Great Society uh, programs, welfare programs, and even the, the some yes. of the civil rights laws that were passed back in those days, and yes. and so that that kind of turns that concept upside down that 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 we that this compassionate conservatism or compassionate liberalism actually is compassionate at all. Yeah, you know, another great economist, Walter Williams, and I, I've read much of Soul on this as well, but Walter Williams wrote a book clear back in, I think it came out in 1980, called The State Against Blacks. And he gave the data, as Sowell does in some of his work, that following the Civil War and right up to the late 1950s, 
uh, black average income in America rose much more rapidly than did white average income, so that the gap between whites and blacks was narrowing very rapidly through that period. But then, as you uh, just mentioned, you you come to the great society programs and all the various different uh, uh, programs to to give people things, uh, poor people things, without requiring that they work for them and pay for them. And suddenly that uh, rapid narrowing of the gap stopped, and then the gap began to grow again. And the reason why is that fundamentally we were ignoring the importance of incentive. Uh, human beings respond to, re- to incentives. If you make uh, the provision of food, clothing, shelter, education, and so on, uh, something that comes to them for free, well, they don't have any incentive to work in order to afford those things. They have an incentive instead to rest, to play. And that's exactly what happened. And by the way, it didn't happen to the blacks because they were black or because there was something deficient about their culture. It happened to whites too. But at the time that the Great Society programs began, a higher percentage of black Americans qualified for the various handouts than of white Americans. So you had a higher percentage who were uh, misled by this perverse incentive to essentially fall out of the, uh, the, the working population. So essentially we, we, we created a long-term multi-generational poverty among people like this, whether black or white, that had never existed in American history before. And uh, it's been very, very difficult to break that. Well, so we're talking here about the the, the problems with welfare, and um, but but a lot of people would say that well, it may have its problems, but if we just take it away, uh, people aren't going to do their job, and, and things will just get worse. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? Well, the my first response to that is that you know when when people hit the circumstance where, look, either I work and work hard or I go hungry, people tend to work and work hard. I I experienced that myself uh, shortly after I graduated from college. I lost a job. And (laughs) within about three weeks, I mean, I was looking for other jobs, but uh, I had fairly high, (laughs) high expectations of what I would find in a job. And I wasn't finding it. And after three weeks, I ran out of money and I ran out of food. And I changed my concept of what sort of job I'd be willing to take. And I wound up (laughs) driving a truck for a while. Uh, That's because, uh, as Proverbs puts it, the poor man's hunger drives him on. Uh, When we break that connection between work and while, uh, that is well-being, uh, we really uh, break the incentive to pull ourselves up, uh, not by our own boot, bootstraps, but by our own hard work. Uh, so, yeah, we, we need to be careful that our compassion doesn't actually wind up doing harm. 
Uh, we also need to be careful to, to recognize the difference between government programs to help poor people and private programs. Government programs tend to be highly impersonal, large-scale, one-size-fits-all, and they don't really uh, they don't really recognize the personal character of of the recipients. Private programs tend to be smaller scale. They tend to be much more personal. They figure out what are the reasons why this person is suffering. How can we address the root causes rather than just the symptom, which is the poverty? Poverty is a symptom. It's not a cause. And we really need to address that. Uh, What people also forget, frankly, is that the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal, does not continue by saying, unless you are the government. And so when the government uh, takes money from George, to whom it belongs, and gives it to Andre, to whom it does not belong, or IBM, or IBM, yes, right. I mean, because frankly, a whole lot of welfare goes not to individuals, but to corporations. And it's just as, as evil. When the government does that, it's violating the Eighth Commandment, just as surely as if I break into my neighbor's house and walk off with this TV. Well, let's talk a little bit about so- solutions to, to this. I mean, if we're going to critique, and I think rightly so, the, the, the government control of not, not just a poverty response, but you know, problems in the economy and slow economic growth or depressions or environmental stewardship. We need to have something that will provide an yeah. alternative to that. And, and you wrote in um, here, you said an, an economic system consistent with the Christian worldview, therefore must reward people according to the intelligence, creativity, and diligence of their work. And, yes. and th- th- that being the, the beginning point, I guess, of, um, of solving these issues. And then you, you follow up with that by saying only the free market does that. How is the free market uh, the the answer to the problems that we're facing in these economic and social and public policy areas? You know, we could go into all sorts of theoretical reasons for that, uh, but I, th- I find the most convincing thing is simply to look at history. There is no country in all of history that has risen out of widespread poverty into widespread f- prosperity that, it, that did it by any means other than a basically free market. That is private property rights, entrepreneurship, uh, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law. Um, this is absolutely indispensable to overcoming poverty if we look at history itself. Uh, and no nation has ever stayed out of poverty without maintaining those. I mean, Think of, uh, of uh, well, currently Venezuela, of course, which used to be one of the wealthiest nations in Latin America and is now a complete basket case after having gone from what was a fairly free market economy to a heavily socialist economy. So the, 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 you know, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? Well, the proof of the the uh, fruit of an economic order is in the actual well-being of the people who live in it. And history tells us 
that a free market uh, lifts and keeps more people out of poverty more surely than does uh, a government-planned socialistic economy. There are you know, a number of different theoretical reasons behind that. Uh, the, very, the very fact that the, the pricing system of the, of the uh, free market economy spontaneously shows where resources are most needed and will bring about the most uh, uh, benefit. But if you have a planned economy, you interfere with that information from the pricing system, and therefore you wind up with a, a, a misallocation of resources. That's critically important. It's something that, of course, uh, the late great economist uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises discussed uh, at great length in his massive work, Human Action, and elsewhere. And of course, uh, F.A. Hayek has done that as well. Uh, but there are just all kinds of reasons why a centrally planned economy cannot compete well with a, uh, a free economy. Adam Smith basically got into this through a single paragraph in his wonderful book, uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which he claimed, contrary to all understanding at the time, that if you left people free to pursue their own interests within the limits of God's moral law, they would serve each other better than if you attempted to coordinate their work through some sort of a central committee. And he was laughed to scorn over that. Well, he wrote a defense of that. And it's another book that is far more widely known, uh, but it's essentially an 1,100-page footnote <laughs> to Theory of Moral Sentiments. And most people know it just by the title, The Wealth of Nations, but the proper title is An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. And it's important that we recognize the, the, the significance of that title. It's an inquiry, which means that these things are not just obvious on the face. You really have to think hard. You have to do a lot of careful observation of the world around you to understand these things. It's an inquiry into the nature of the wealth of the nations. In other words, wealth is not necessarily what people first think it is. Back in his day, a nation was considered wealthy if there was a lot of money in the, uh, in the uh, uh, royal treasury. Smith instead defined wealth as the purchasing power of common labor. And so countries that maybe had very, very little money in the, in the royal treasury might have uh, very high purchasing power for their common laborers. Those were the wealthy countries. And then uh, it's an inquiry not just into the nature of, of wealth, but also into the causes of wealth. And so Smith then uh, proceeded to do a great deal of research showing that uh, where you left people free to pursue their own interests in the limits of God's moral law, no, no, uh, you know, no, no uh, fraud, theft, or violence permitted. Uh, people, in fact, produced a whole lot more than if you tried to coordinate their efforts. And of course, that was an insight that changed the world. Well, you talk about the uh, moral foundations here and, and Smith's application of that and mm -hmm. ruling out you know, fraud and theft and, and physical violence and those kind of things. But but isn't that one of the problems or 
I'm asking from from a critic's perspective, that that free markets are free to do just about anything they want. I mean, and and don't you have to have regulation in order to to stop that problem? Well, yeah, you have to have laws against fraud, theft, and violence. <laughs> that's you know, that's there's nothing contrary to a free market about that. Um, when we talk free market, we're not talking. Uh, um, libertinism. Uh, there's no place in the free market for, you know, uh, uh, you know, murder incorporated or, or, or for that matter, for, uh, for uh, sex trafficking, anything of that sort. The free market is characterized by people uh, entering into voluntary, knowledgeable exchanges of benefit for benefit. And when people do that, they both gain. If you sell me something, I'm not willing to fork over my money unless I value more highly what I receive from you than I do the money that I fork over. Likewise, you're not willing to fork over what you sell to me unless you value more the money that I give to you than the thing that you're selling to me. So what that means is that in a free market, uh, it's a win-win situation. You and I both improve our condition, our economic condition, through that trade. If instead, I can use the power of the state to force you to fork over something, whether you like the price I'm willing to pay, if anything, at all, uh, that's, uh, that is a... Uh, a, a zero-sum game. My wealth is uh, achieved at your loss. That's a bad thing. Well, free market is not that. Well, let's before we finish up, just let me ask you one more question and kind of apply that. You, you posted a had a recent post on your webpage titled "The EPA Takes Aim at a Permian Basin and Continued War on Fossil Fuels." Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you, in the article, you, you basically. Uh, approached it from a scientific perspective in the concept talk around global warming, but but what's wrong with what the EPA is doing from a biblical economic perspective? Well, uh, yeah, this has to do with the fact that the EPA is is uh, has announced that it's going to be doing flyovers with infrared cameras uh, over uh, drilling areas in the Permian Basin for natural gas and oil and wants to measure methane emissions from those places. Now, I think that there is nothing wrong in principle, in principle, with uh, regulating emissions of various different sorts of pollutants in order to uh, minimize harm done to human beings. Um, the, the problem is, well, uh, fairly complex. Um, on the one hand, there's, uh, there's a concept that economists call regulatory capture, and that is that uh, corporations that, uh, that uh, do business in things that government agencies want to regulate have a strong incentive to try to influence that regulation. And so they tend to be very heavily involved in lobbying regarding that and uh, they get a place at the table in the forming of the regulation. What usually happens is that 
already large, wealthy corporations can afford this easily, and small, not-so-wealthy corporations can't, so the large corporations use the regulatory process itself as a means of limiting competition. And that then, in turn, limits the, uh, the rapidity with which improvement in technologies happens because competition is what drives that improvement. So that's one problem with the regulation as, as the means of solving things like this. Another problem is that uh, under British and American common law, if you can prove that a pollutant being emitted by some neighboring corporation is actually causing you harm in one way or another, uh, you could make a suit at common law for tort and a judge could simply issue a cease and desist order to the corporation, uh, or you and the corporation could come to a negotiated agreement as to what you're willing to uh, allow uh, in return for the corporations paying you something. Regulatory approach to this instead sets a standard for emission, and as long as the corporation's emission uh, meets that standard, it has protection against a tort suit in case you get harmed by that emission. Okay, so let's get now to the specific case of the EPA saying it's going to do these uh, flyovers uh, to, to measure methane emissions from oil and gas wells in the Permian Basin. There's nothing wrong with it in principle. The problem is that there is no good evidence that these methane emissions are causing net harm, whether to humanity or to, the, you know, to, to other life on Earth in general. Uh, the worry is that methane is a greenhouse gas, that is an infrared-absorbing gas. And in fact, people point out that it's, hey, it's 30 times more powerful molecule per molecule than carbon dioxide. Uh, and we're all afraid, afraid that uh, carbon dioxide emissions are, are driving dangerous global warming. Well, if methane is 30 times more powerful than carbon dioxide, surely we really need to be afraid of that. Well, the problem here is that we emit 300 times as much CO2 as we do methane. And when you actually do the physical uh, research to figure out how much warming comes from our emissions of carbon dioxide and methane, well, physicists Will Happer and William Van Weingarten have calculated the combined global warming effect of all human emissions of carbon dioxide and methane from all places around the entire world at about 0.12 degrees Celsius per century. Uh, carbon dioxide, because we emit 300 times as much of that as we do methane, makes up 0 .1, uh, 0.018, pardon me, 0 0.0108 degrees C per century and methane only 0.0012 degrees C per century. Neither one of those by itself, nor the two combined, is dangerous. And uh, in fact, uh, the benefits that we get from the oil and the natural gas that we uh, remove by this drilling process 
exceed by thousands of times any harm that you could uh, tie to the emissions of methane. So essentially what EPA is doing is it's using uh, the, the fears of global warming driven by methane to justify a regulatory action that is uh, not justified by proper cost-benefit analysis. Well, it, it sounds like this issue is, is in line with a lot of government policies and regulations we have today, and, and they're yeah. unbiblical, uneconomic, and unscientific. And, yeah. and um, so I really appreciate you being with us today, Cal, to, to talk about these issues and help bring this a biblical and economic and scientific perspective to, to all these issues and help us understand this a little bit better. Would you please tell us again your website so people can go to and learn more about yeah. you? Yeah, that's cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. And during this month of August, uh, as our way of saying thank you when someone makes a gift of literally any size, 100% tax deductible, uh, if they request it, we'll send them a copy of uh, uh, Alex Epstein's marvelous new book called Fossil Future in which Epstein just refutes all the various arguments against the use of fossil fuels and shows why they are absolutely essential to human thriving, human flourishing in the world. Uh, so if people, if people will go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the donate button and make a donation of any size, and then as they fill out the donation form, is the, if they'll just ask for fossil future, uh, which is a book that retails at 30 bucks. <laughs> We'll send them a free copy, and uh, that'll be our way of saying thank you. Uh, and by the way, during this month, uh, that gift will be doubled uh, by a number of other donors who have uh, pledged to, do to, uh, to double anything up to $50,000 in this month. That'd be a great birthday gift to the Cornwall Alliance. Well, great. And I encourage everybody to go visit the uh, Cornwall Alliance website and support them. And again, well, thanks again, Cal, for being here with us today. And thanks to all our listeners for being with us and to our sponsor, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.